today's episode, we'll discuss why there are only ever two parties in U.S. politics. Turns out there's an actual reason why this happens. We'll talk about that today. We'll discuss everything from French socialists to poorly explained sports analogies. So join us. This is episode five of Escaping Left, Right, and Center. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. My name is Taylor. If you're just joining us, the premise of this show is thinking outside the box when it comes to U.S. politics, finding another way to think about things other than the left, right, or center that we find ourselves typically saddled with on a day-to-day basis. The recap of the podcast thus far, we've learned about the history of partisanism in the United States. We know that it's been a known quantity the whole time. We talked about Federalist 10 a couple episodes back. We learned about where the terms left and right come from. And then last time we looked at the seven eras, or six eras, depending on uh, who you are, of U.S. politics, which included a general history of the, uh, the major two parties, the Democrats and the Republicans. We talked about which era we are in now. Which, uh, if you didn't listen, spoiler alert, we don't know. We're either in the 6th or 7th era. And we talked about how throughout history, no matter which period we were in, there were only two parties, more or less. So now that we have that sort of freshly in our minds, we're going to start to think about, well, why are there only two parties? Is there some sort of... uh, easily explainable phenomenon in the background that's causing this to happen. Since we know that Federalist 10 warned us, George Washington warned us, history showed that we've done a poor job at having more than two parties, so what what is going on? What the heck happened? The short answer is that, yes, there is an actual explicit reason why we only have two parties. It's not so much about the media or public opinion or society as a whole, but there is actually a mechanical reason why we are stuck with only two parties at a given moment. So we're going to talk about it. And in order to do so, we're going to go back to the year 1917, and we're going to discuss a fellow named Maurice Duverger. I believe I'm pronouncing that correctly. Born in... 1917 in a city in France. I'm not going to be able to pronounce it. Let's see if our uh, our Google overlords can tell us how it's pronounced. Angoulême. Ah, yes, very good. So Maurice Duverger was born in France. He studied and taught political theory in various uh, institutes of higher education throughout France during the uh, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And although he was a pretty smart fella, as we'll learn in a little bit, he was not, um, perhaps not so smart when it came to his own political theories for his own life. He was a member of the French fascist party during World War II, uh, which I I think we can give a thumbs down to. He worked in uh, Vichy, France during the Nazi occupation. After the war, he was a member of the Italian Socialist Party, which later became known as, I believe, the Democratic Party of the Left. And uh, he actually was a member of the European Parliament, which is one of the uh, sections of the 
EU. So, an interesting fella, even though he was able to uh, make some pretty interesting deductions, perhaps not uh, the most well-thought-out application of said deductions in his own life. I've been doing my best to not uh, overly commit to certain ideologies over others, but I can say with a firm sense of clarity and conviction that socialism and fascism are both uh, terrible ways to A, run a country, and B, think about our fellow humans. But I digress. In the 50s, as he was working in these various uh, universities in France, he was doing some research into the relationship between systems of election and their impact on political parties. He was very fascinated with the idea of political parties, how they came to be, how they maintained cohesion, all that type of thing. And he came up with this theory, which even though in a little bit we're going to refer to it as a law, it is, it is really a theory. And it's named after him. It's called uh, Duverger's Law or Duverger's Theory. When they spell it, they do use a lowercase l for the law, since it's, you know, it's not like gravity. But it goes like this. This is a boiled-down version. It basically says, in a political election where there can only be one winner, two parties will tend to emerge. So, if you have elections which only choose one winner, given enough time, it will become a two-party system. Okay, so maybe that makes sense in some sort of vague way, but let's break it down a little bit. So in a political system with only one winner, so what does that mean? So a one-winner system, which is sometimes referred to as a plurality system, or as we know it in the United States, uh, the system we use is called first-past-the-post. First-past-the-post, or FPTP if you're playing along at home. And this is the system we're all very familiar with, where each voter gets one vote, and you can cast it for a single candidate, and the candidate with the most votes wins. Very simple, right? So think of, like, the mayor of a city. Everybody shows up to the polling station. Everyone's got one vote. You've got a list of potential candidates. You cast your vote for the one you like the most, and whoever gets the most votes wins. We do this for mayors, state reps, senators, the president. We do this all over the place. It's a very well-entrenched American tradition. And not just an American tradition, but this was made popular by the British. Uh, this was the method used to elect members of parliament in the House of Commons all the way back into the Middle Ages. So this is not quite a thousand years old, but it's, it's a very traditionally... Western European way of doing things. And it seems very fair on its face, right? Like, whoever gets the most votes wins. Like, it, it's very straightforward. However, there are problems with first-past-the-post. If you've done any research into this, I'm sure they'll be familiar, but I'll go over them quickly. In addition to creating a two-party system, which is kind of the big one we're going to talk about, here are some of the other problems that first-past-the-post creates. The first one is a big one. Uh, first past the post creates gerrymandering, which many of us have probably heard of. I'm hoping to do a complete episode on gerrymandering at some point in the future. 
But this is basically when, after a census, one of the reasons for that census is the redrawing of districts to make sure that they're equally uh, representing folks by where they live. And the problem with First of Ask the Post is that uh, the party in power gets to basically oversee the redrawing of the districts, and they can do so in a way that favors their party. If you get creative, you can effectively eliminate minority opinions by lumping them into districts where they'll be automatically overpowered by well-known majorities. So if you have a certain section of the district that typically skews one way and another section that skews another way, if you redraw the maps very specifically, you can basically guarantee an outcome more or less, um, which is why in most of the federal redistricting all the maps need to get approved by uh, the courts because people do this all the time if you want to see a uh, a good example of a gerrymandered district it doesn't exist anymore because it just got changed this year actually in 2023 but look up the maryland u.s district 3 up until uh 2023 so if you look up 20 the 2020 map it's absolutely ridiculous the fact that you could call that a district is is very silly. So gerrymandering is a huge problem, one that is well known, but very hard to get rid of when we only have first past the post. The second problem is it uh, it is not proportionately representative, right? So members of the losing party are not represented equal to the percentage of folks who voted that way. So like, for instance, in Massachusetts, where I live, the House of Representatives, the state Senate, and the governor are all Democrat, overwhelmingly so. I should check this, but I think there's a supermajority in the two houses. Um, but if you look at the actual numbers of votes cast, something like 40% of the state is Republican, but an overwhelming majority of the legislature is Democrat. So there is not representation equal to the percentage of Republicans, just as an example. Uh, a third issue with First Past the Post is the idea of wasted votes. So say there's someone who feels very strongly that the, that the Green Party best represents their political convictions, but why would anybody vote for the Green Party when they have absolutely no shot at winning anything? So instead of voting their conviction in the party that best represents them, they're going to take that vote and vote for uh, another party that they believe has a better chance of winning. So it sort of disconnects the voter from their convictions to using their one vote strategically based on who they think is going to win. Because of this brings us to the fourth problem. This discourages smaller parties from forming. Since voters don't want to waste their vote on a candidate who has no chance of winning, the likelihood that a smaller third party will ever gain enough votes to win anything is very, very small. There's a great quote from uh, the Douglas Adams novel, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, where um, there's a democracy where people vote for lizards as their leaders, and no one is happy except for the lizards. But the people continued to vote for the lizards because if they didn't vote for a lizard, the wrong lizard might get in, which wonderfully sums up first past the post and, and wasted votes. Okay, two more. 
Uh, next is the spoiler effect. So say a third party does manage to get on the ballot. Whichever of the two big parties this third party is closest to, they'll actually hurt that larger party. So a good example in this specific moment is Robert Kennedy Jr. is considering running as a third candidate in the 2024 presidential elections. And many Democrats are worried about this because if he runs, it's very likely that he will pull some Democrats away from Biden to vote for him, which will certainly not allow him to win, but will most certainly hurt the Democratic cause. So this is the spoiler effect. The final uh, issue before we get into Duverger's law is there's a lot of opposition to reform. So if you're one of the two big parties and you happen to control both houses and the governorship, there's no incentive for you to change the system into one where you will effectively have less power. So there's not a terrible amount of willpower in the existing legislatures to uh, change the system to, to make it easier for third parties to run. So there you go. We've got one, two, three, four, five, six problems with first past the post. In addition to, now let's get into the big stuff, Duverger's Law, which again, just to restate, is that if you have a first past the post system, it will eventually result in two parties and the subsequent issues that follow. So, if you'll bear with me, I'm going to make uh, my best attempt at a sports analogy to help explain sort of the process of Duverger's Law. There's a phenomenal video on YouTube called Minority Rule First Past the Post Voting that does a very exceptional job at explaining the problems with First Past the Post and some of the alternatives. The channel's called CGP Gray. Very good if you want to go check that out. It'll be a much clearer presentation of the thought than what I'm about to give you. But we're going to do a little sports, okay? So, and this is going to be tricky without any sort of visual aid. So I need you to really dig in and, and stick with me here. So we're going to imagine a room with 100 people in it. And at the front of the room, we've got representatives from the five major sports who are all vying for the title of uh, Sport of the Year. So we've got basketball, baseball, football, hockey, and soccer. So these are the five sports. The teams, uh, they campaign, they highlight their merits, they point out the shortcomings of the other sports. Everybody listens, and election day comes. And the 100 people get a list of their teams, and they can only cast one vote for which sport should be sport of the year. The votes are cast, the votes are tallied, and here are the results. Football receives 37 votes. Basketball receives 31 votes. Hockey, 19. Baseball, 9. And soccer, 4. Mm. If we're using first past the post, this means that football wins. Hooray, with 37 votes. However, you'll notice that that's only 37% of the total votes cast. So even though football wins, that means that upwards of 60% of the room did not want football. Hmm. So that's interesting. Goes back to our proportional issue. 
but this is fine. A year goes by, and now it's time to uh, to reconsider and cast new votes for sports team of the year. Soccer did very poorly last year. It only got four votes, so soccer decides not to bother since there's no way he's gonna really break the top three. And he he tells his voters to uh, to support football since they stole his name. You know, might as well throw your votes behind football. But some of the baseball voters. They don't like football. They think it's too violent. So they decide that they'll vote for basketball just to make sure that they're not stuck with football again. So the votes are cast. The results come in. Football gets a little bump from the uh, the soccer voters. He's up to 41 now. Basketball got a bump to 38. Some of the uh, the baseball folks came over. Hockey's holding strong at 19, and baseball's down to 2 at this point. So football wins again wins a, with a slightly higher percentage, but in the grand total, still a minority. The bump from the soccer voters helped keep his lead over basketball. And the baseball crowd really loses big since uh, neither their preferred candidate nor did their safety vote come out ahead. So baseball, that's really the loser. Another year goes by. Time to vote again. The hockey crowd, they're getting tired of football. It's been two years of football in a row. But they also know uh, that no matter what they do, they don't have enough votes to get hockey elected. So a lot of them get together and they decide that they're going to vote basketball just to make sure they're not stuck with football for a third year in a row. So the year three results come in. Football receives 40 votes and basketball now receives 45. Hockey's down to 12 because some of their folks jumped ship and baseball gets three this year. Basketball wins, but they only won because they pulled some voters from hockey. And even though they win, and even though they beat football, they're still only 45% of the voters. All right, so fast forward a few years. Baseball has completely dropped out, and now it's only football and basketball who consistently win big percentages. And it really boils down to them just trying to convince and persuade the hockey voters which one they're going to cast their votes for this year. Uh, it doesn't matter that hockey uh, will never get picked. Hockey's never going to win. So they're left just choosing between these two options that they don't really like. Which I think is a very relatable position for many of us to be in when it comes to politics. We see... The two big parties consistently winning 40-something percent, and then those of us who like hockey in the middle are stuck trying to pick which one we're going to go for. Rugby thinks about uh, running next year, but that would only pull voters away from football, meaning that neither rugby nor football would win, and basketball would be almost guaranteed a victory. So that would be the, the spoiler event. So we can see that as time goes on, we get stuck with these two big parties and a small sort of intermediate group who's never going to get what they actually want, but just gets bumped back and forth between the two big groups. Which brings up another uh, very common issue with First Past the Post, which is when you belong to that unrepresented middle section, instead of voting for something, you typically vote against something. So... Uh, if the presidential candidate running for X party is someone you really dislike or disagree with, you will vote for 
their opponent simply to prevent them from winning. So I heard a great quote once that Americans don't vote for a president. They vote against the candidate they dislike. So that I think that comes from being part of the hockey crowd, knowing you can't get what you actually like. So I might as well prevent the person I dislike from winning. So an, an, another unfortunate side effect. So this, in my mind, is such a huge issue when it comes to polarization. Because if you add on top of this the 24-hour news industry and social media and algorithmic echo chambers and all these other issues, you really just get this perfect soup of polarizing effects where it's just an inescapable eventuality. But the question is, where in the sequence of events does it happen? Is it something that happens because of the system? Is it something that socially works backwards into the mechanics itself? Uh, it's a little tricky to say one way or the other. There are a couple theories, though. There is a thought that it's the other way around, that a strong, the existence of two strong parties will lead societies into establishing a first-past-the-post system. That's called the micro-mega rule, but it's generally considered that it's the first-past-the-post that creates the two parties and not the other way around. There has been some criticism of this theory, mostly because there are a handful of places where there is first-past-the-post and we don't see the emergence of two strong parties, um, but that can be attributed mostly just to the size and scope of those societies where it's easier for smaller regional um, groups to form. We do see pretty ironclad evidence for this, uh, for Duverger's law in places like the U.S., in Canada, in Italy, in Japan, and even parts of India. Like I said earlier, this is a lowercase l law, not so much an uppercase l law. But it's really fascinating. I remember the first time I learned about this, it was pretty mind-blowing because I had had the thought that surely, surely this can't be... There's got to be some reason that this is happening. So to read about this and learn, yes, there is actually a reason. It was just a, uh, a revelation moment, one of those light bulb moments. So what do we do? How do we change it? Uh, there's three theories on how you get out of this uh, two-party doom loop. The three theories are you can either have these grassroots local parties spring up, sort of regionally based, that win seats in the local legislature. So like if, uh, if a small party were to begin in Massachusetts and win a couple seats in the House of Representatives, that would be a way to get a foot in the door. I mean, it would take a long time, but that's one way of doing it. Another way is to replace one of the major parties. We talked last week about how when the Whig Party fell apart after the War of 1812, the Republican Party filled that vacuum and became the second of the big parties. But at least in U.S. history, that's really the only time that that's happened. So that's not necessarily something that can be engineered or worked towards necessarily. And then the third way of changing it, I think makes the most sense, which is changing the political system or the election method, which 
we're going to spend an entire episode coming up about some of the different ways that other countries do it. Things like ranked choice, uh, transferable vote, instant runoffs, things like that. And I'm going to spend an episode talking about those. And then I'm going to spend an entire episode talking about the one that I like the most, which is called mixed member proportional, which just gets me excited even saying it. It's so cool. So we're going to spend an entire episode on that as well. So we now know that there's this issue underlying the two-party problem. And I don't think that it itself is the cause of a lot of the division and polarization that we see. But I think it is an engine that is fueled by our sort of natural partisan inclinations. Like I mentioned, next time we're going to talk about some different systems. It'll be really cool. They do it differently in a whole bunch of democracies all over the world. So it'll be interesting to see other ways that people have worked to address this. I was just reading today that in Australia, they had first passed the post, and then in the early 1900s, they switched it to something else. We'll talk about what that is next time. Until then, however, thank you for listening. I appreciate it very much. If you would please rate, like, and subscribe, share this with a friend, share it with an enemy, share it with uh, someone you're indifferent about. We're going to hear from one of our lovely fake sponsors. And uh, until next time, thanks so much. We'll see you then. Where does it all start? Sometimes here with an acid stomach or here with tense, upset digestive nerves. It may even reach here with that fuzzy, achy feeling in the head. Soon you seem to feel sick all over. It's the acid tension pain trouble triangle. Now there's a new medication, liquid peptans, specially developed to break the trouble triangle. Peptans comes in fast-acting liquid form, no waiting to dissolve. Peptan settles acid stomach with an ingredient that neutralizes excess acid, a cause of your trouble. Peptans calms digestive nerves with tension-soothing ingredients that help stop stomach spasms and cramps. Peptans has a gentle, fast-acting ingredient that helps relieve the achy head that's part of your distressed feeling. Peptans breaks the trouble triangle to help stop your sick-all-over feeling. Break the acid-tension-pain trouble triangle. Get new liquid peptans.